This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And was brought to you by Pelgrim Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... End Games. Folk Horror 101. Odilon Redon. And Robert Johnson. Choose your hero. Push your luck. Build colossal combos. If you believe that games should have dwarves, the dwarves should roll dice, and the true camaraderie is hollering cheers and sharing a beer, then Dice Miner is for you. Dice Miner is a tabletop game about drafting the dice you covet, adding them to your hoard, and pushing your luck to score the most points. Published and kickstarted by our friends at Atlas Games. To play, roll a bag full of custom dice down a 3D mountain, then take turns drafting them off. Build straights to score. Collect the most treasure, then double your profit. Avoid dragons and cave-ins or hoard tools to protect yourself. Reroll dice to push your luck. And don't forget the beer. Find Dice Miner on Kickstarter beginning May 26th or go to atlas-games.com backslash Dice Miner to sign up for a launch email in advance. Dice Miner, because every gamer loves dice. So uh, before we get started, a little bit of a preamble hut. As uh, we are recording, we have just learned, and you've known for 10 days, uh, that the uh, thing everyone uh, has been expecting to happen and was on tenterhooks waiting for official word has happened, and Gen Con in its physical incarnation uh, has been canceled. You may have already asked us how we feel about this, but Ken, how do we feel about this? Well, we are sad, of course, that Gen Con is canceled because... We're sad that everything was canceled, but we are glad that we're not going to see, you know, a super spreader event infect 75,000 of our closest, most personal friends. So I guess mixed feelings. Yes. So <laughs> lots of people have been putting virtual contingency plans into place, assuming this would happen. And uh, Ken and I and the Pelgrane crew are uh, certainly have been doing that as well. So uh, there will be an online component and you can be sure that we will be a uh, part and parcel of that in some way. That has yet to be announced. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here on the Gaming Hut, oh, look at that, Robin. It's, it's a series of financial planning documents and a PERT program. There's a, there's a best uh, practices chart and uh, a schedule about when you need to start putting your gold into uh, into bonds instead of stocks. Robin, are games supposed to plan for the end of your career? Asks beloved Patreon backer Jason Thompson. Or to wit, to what extent can rules guide or substitute for an explicit mission? For example, old school D&D assumes adventurers eventually settle down and become landowners. Call of Cthulhu assumes that adventurers almost certainly die or head into the asylum. How far can game rules encapsulate and guide story, and in this case, 
uh, Jason seems to be asking about long form story, not the sort of more narrow story of this is the story of a bunch of thieves who went into a dungeon and came back with a bunch of money and very bloody weapons. Yes, I, I think of the word mission as referring to the goal of an individual scenario. Yeah. And within that, certainly we've talked a lot about how uh, you can uh, guide story and there's all sorts of guidance to that effect. Guidance on how to guide uh, mm-hmm. in the various gumshoe games, uh, because uh, investigative games have a structure in a way that, say, picaresque games uh, might or might not. But I think Jason is talking about end games. And so m- my first question is that example from the first edition, from, from the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide, where it indicates that once you hit a certain level, that you then become feudal lords, which... It was not how feudal lordship worked, uh, but I think uh, uh, Gary Gygax was kind of extrapolating in an interesting and revealing, very American sort of way mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what uh, the vast accomplishments of the characters are and what they would aspire to socially. So it's more like, you know, did gunfighters in the old West accumulate a lot of money and become uh, tycoons? Well, no, that didn't happen either. Um, so <laughs> there was sort of a real historical thing being extrapolated, but it the accent uh, sort of is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. And the other sort of thing about that, Ken, is do you know anyone whose group actually did that back in the day? I mean, I personally don't know anyone who did that. I am absolutely not prepared to say it didn't happen because, uh, you know, people did all kinds of things back in the day. Uh, I don't think that that guided any of our play even from the very earliest times when we were piecing together the mysteries of these strange runic systems. And certainly none of our characters ever said, well, I'm 10th level. That means I'm resigning to run my castle. Have fun, everybody. Uh, that it was much more of a, um, you know, a, a, an upward slog until someone got mad and Odin stabbed you. And that was it. I, I think, I think that the, the guidance per se in AD and D is, is less much guidance as just sort of, a half-baked idea? Yeah, the half-baked <laughs> that, that idea no ever... or the unclarified assumption. And and part of it, I guess, I mean, I, to sort of look at it as charitably as you possibly can, is that Gygax realized that after about 10th level, playing D&D stops being fun and starts being some degree of uh, bookkeeping and sadism. And yeah, so, so then you're obligated to do something even less fun. Right. <laughs> Real is... estate management. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but but the, he, he didn't ever say... You stop playing at 10th, game is over at 10th. And he certainly, you know, very rapidly began to add, you know, epic level uh, uh, characters and and 13th level monsters and all manner of of stuff that would lure you up uh, into the deities and demigods uh, world of of beating up on um, uh, Dagon. Uh, So so whatever notion he had in his head rapidly went away under, you know, let's say artistic impulses or commercial ones. And... And that was it. So the, so the guidance per se or the, or the, or the sort of the, the, the offer of, uh, of retirement, uh, that's present and then you blow past it is it's not really, I mean, it's hard to say that anything was intrinsic to old, uh, you know, AD and D because the game system was actually four or five game systems, but it certainly wasn't even as intrinsic. As as most of the systems were right. I mean, yeah, and and it uh, people are reaching for their uh, for their uh, keyboards on their mobile devices or otherwise uh, to remind us that in the early nineties, uh, TSR uh, took that idea and thought, well, what if we actually uh, design a setting in which that is supposed to be implemented? And that was called Birthright. 
And again, uh, not the most popular or memorable of the D&D settings, again, because I think that people who want to play D&D want to kick down doors and fight uh, opponents and take their stuff. Uh, They don't, in large part, uh, want to be uh, running fiefdoms. uh, Yeah. Because it turns out that's a drag. Birthright does have a a bolus, a locus of popularity, I think, amongst people who want to be more design uh, involved in their game, that they that they want their game to have a little more design structure. And so certainly people who become designers, I think like Birthright better than the uh, audience at large did. <laughs> so in our crowd, I'll bet we find way more Birthright stands than you see, you know, in, in the general world. And certainly, you know, it, it sold okay, but it was no, it was no Ravenloft, much less a Forgotten Realms. Right. Um, and so the, what, what might be fun is to do a campaign that culminates at big epic level. And then you say, and then everybody goes off and they, and that's the, the big ending, right? That's the, the award ceremony at the end of Star Wars. Right. Uh, and they all get awarded their feudal fiefdoms. And then six months later, you come back with the, I'm getting too old for this stuff. A version of the campaign where it's 20 years later and everybody's got uh, a rheumatism and joint aches, but they have to leave their uh, workaday responsibilities to come back and save the world uh, one last time. And so right. that the, the feudal management part of that is a montage sequence at the end of one campaign and at, at the beginning of the other. Because mostly uh, players want to shirk political in- engagement in favor of the the lure of irresponsibility. Yeah, and if they if they don't like the, the 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 Baron giving them orders and telling them what to do, they're definitely not going to like you know uh, tenant councils presenting them with petitions for <laughs> you know blessed crops spells on the rye fields or whatever. Yes, oh, it's, it's the Park Slope Co-op meeting <laughs> right, again and again yes. and again. Um, and as far as the Call of Cthulhu examples go, uh, those are both sort of endpoints as what happens when things go wrong, right? That it, like in pretty well any game, your character can die mid-campaign. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is, well, you just uh, sort of emotionally and spiritually die and are shuffled off to, to an as- asylum. And that's, you know, essentially the same thing, except possibly your character can come back as a as an NPC, right. uh, they can show up and ask a question and say, Oh, Henry Armitage, it's been a long time since I've heard that name. Right. That, uh, mm-hmm. But that's certainly not your aspiration for the, the end of uh, a campaign. So I would say that in terms of guiding story toward a conclusion for the characters that the players actually want is a whole other thing. And in, campaign play i think that's something that hasn't been touched very much so well i mean i i did it in knights black agents not to toot my own horn but toot away my friend the entire the entire point of knights black agents is to recapitulate the thriller structure um and in the end of the thriller whether that's the end of the first movie or the end of the trilogy the bad guys are 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 run to ground and defeated ideally by the good guys in a, a final uh combat and the structure of nice black agents deliberately funnels the player characters, the agents up through the, the, the cons pyramid to the vampire Lords in this case at the, at the center of everything. The goal being that as they have gone through these, these earlier challenges, they have gained enough knowledge to be able to kill the vampire Lords. And 
even in the relatively parsimonious gumshoe experience economy, they've gained, you know, plenty more points to put into uh, melee combat or weapons or whatever I called it so that they can actually, you know, stake a guy in the chest without missing. And, and that's sort of the, the goal and the drive and the direction that everything in Knights Black Agents takes is because so much of the, of the campaign building advice depends on and is articulated through the cons pyramid and, uh, you know, challenge levels increasing and, and the rest of it. So that the default assumption is, yes, you're playing a finite campaign in which you, uh, you know, Jason Bourne or your Mission Impossible team or whatever are going to, you know, go through three movies worth of adventure or maybe one movie, depending on how fast you want to do it. And at the end, come face to face with uh, uh, Dracula or Count Orlock or Elizabeth Bathory or whoever and stake the heck out of them. Right. And this gets us back to the idea of mission writ large as sort of the an, an uber mission for an entire campaign in that generally, to the extent that there is, uh, you know, something that the characters are being pulled toward in any game, it is a big victory. And in a gumshoe games, that is uh, solving the overarching mystery and then doing something about it. So the Yellow King role playing game posits a uh, vast cycle of uh, reality breakdown that the uh, characters, uh, the four sets of characters are trapped in, and the end victory involves breaking that cycle, uh, perhaps uh, in a horrible way. And uh, in Ashen Stars, there's a thing called the Mohalar War, where uh, the uh, sort of quasi-breakdown of uh, interstellar civilization, at least in your sector, is a side effect of a uh, war with a strange alien entities and nobody quite remembers them or what happened in the war. And so that's an overarching mystery. And if you figure out what that is and by setting it up as part of the game, the assumption is that maybe you're going to do something about that, that if you solve the mystery of the Mohalar war, that would be the big ending for that. Or uh, in mutant city blues, it's the, the sudden mutation event, uh, which is what gave uh, a small percentage of the population uh, mutant powers 10 years ago. And so uh, these are all mystery games. And so all of these games posit a, uh, a big mystery for F20 or fantasy games. You know, you can look to the original epics and go, well, the thing you do is you defeat this world's equivalent of Sauron, right? And so, you know, you might make it you know, the goal to decide early on which of the uh, uh, major demons or uh, uh, devils the players most hate, and the goal is to destroy uh, that entity, and they're uh, taken out at the end. And uh, 13th Age, another F20 game, uh, the obvious thing to have happen there would be to end the 13th Age and start the 14th Age, and perhaps uh, even become some of the icons that uh, determine the shape of that age. Yeah. The 13th age though, does at least sort of, you know, resolutely end at 10th level. So that uh, the question of what happens then has to be in the forefront of the GM's mind. And it's a way of sort of implicit mission guidance, because once you start a 13th age game, you, I assume are thinking about, where are we going with this? What's what happens? To, does, is it a we have to replace one of us is going to replace an icon or we're all going to replace icons is, uh, like unknown armies? Speaking of another game with a t with a telos, um, is it a game in which we're just going to retire and become landlords in the Dragon Empire in my 13th age game at the end? They are going to have restored, hopefully, the Olympian gods to primacy and conducted the final uh, ritual uh, uh, sealing uh, uh, the proper Greek heaven in place, as opposed to all these stupid other heavens. And, and so the, the the question of what happens at 10th at level 
is the question that I think anyone who starts a long-term 13th age game has to tangle with because there isn't any more after that. And it's just, you know, is it, you know, you all just shake hands and, and, and leave the, um, uh, the, the fountain at the Bellagio, like in Ocean's Eleven, or is there something else that goes on? I'm tempted now to, to ask a question, which would start a whole other unrelated segment, which is, is it a good idea to restore the Greek gods to primacy? So instead of having you answer that, uh, let's see what other segment is waiting for us on the other side of this commercial, and uh, you can answer that one. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And the missing and the lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press Store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. The smell of popcorn and the luxurious glow of our home theater as we continue to be connected to uh, the world of film while staying at home tell us we're once more in the cinema hut. And uh, this time around, uh, Ken, uh, you decided that it would be a good idea to uh, zero in on a particular subgenre of horror and look at Folk Horror 101. So what inspired uh, your desire to look over this rich, but uh, rather slim subsection of horror cinema? I mean, part of it is just that, you know, I, I saw The Wicker Man at, a, at an early age, spoilers, and I have always been interested in that sort of uh, sensibility in terms of, you know, uh, occult film in uh, writ large. And then the discovery that it sort of has its own, you know, amorphous genre markers. It's, it's kind of an interesting topic just theoretically as to, 
you know, is, does just saying something's in a genre make it so? Because that seems to have been the case uh, with the uh, inception of folk horror. And we are currently in the in the middle, who can say, in, in the in the process of a new efflorescence of the genre. Uh, new filmmakers who, like myself, were touched in a inappropriate place by the Wicker Man as 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 youths have have grown up and started uh, recapitulating some of those uh, artistic and emotional goals into their own films. And as it becomes a thing, I think that kind of Robin, it's it's our job really to help our our beloved listeners uh, cope with discussions of folk horror, so they can lean back and say, well actually right and uh and win those uh bar fights right so it's it's easy enough to define what a a neo folk horror film is what these this latest uh cycle of films are and that is uh a film that in some way uh, tips its hat to the wicker man and uh (laughs) the, the wicker man is not the first film that you could identify as folk horror but i think it is the touchstone um and so what are the ingredients of uh, uh folk horror um the the ingredients of folk horror generally and this is sort of been teased out as people like i say the folk the word folk horror the, the phrase was coined by the director of a, another movie which we'll get to uh pierce haggard um who said that when he was making his movie he was trying for a folk horror sensibility and he was using it to mean like folk rock so it's it's a thing but it's folky. And so the notion that folk horror contains some sort of uh, older ritual or older occult or older pagan understanding, almost always it is connected to the landscape and occurs in a remote area. And it uh, finally is the action of the, uh, maybe not the protagonist, but certainly the main character going into this, uh, setting and triggering some sort of horrific uh, revelation or happening. So you have an outsider coming into a archetypically pagan survival or pagan remnant. They discover that, oh my goodness, there's there's paganry afoot, and then things go down. And that is the sort of or plot of folk horror. And of course, like all genre, it can get twisted and jambled around. And as I think we'll probably talk about, it sort of draws from other stuff that got put into it by Mark Gaddis when he said, uh, it's not just a thing that, uh, uh Michael Reeves said, uh, while, uh, high talking to Fangoria, it's a genre. And here are the three things, the three films that I, Mark Gaddis, uh, say made folk horror a genre. And pretty much all folk horror scholarship has been trying in one tenor or other, not to say Mark Gaddis is full of it, but to come up with some argument for these three films that do sort of feel like they rhyme artistically to get to be considered progenitors of the genre, the subgenre, the micro genre that is right now having, as I say, this almost entirely wicker man driven uh, revival. Right. Um, and so there is some overlap with the uh, witch uh, genre, but not all witch movies are uh, folk horror and not all folk horror movies have witches in them. And uh, to my mind, uh, what makes it folk horror is specifically that it's somehow related to English pagan tradition so that it is a a horror movie where either Morris dancing does break out or there's the threat of Morris dancing uh, breaking out. And of course, Midsummer is not English, but is still referring to that same uh, broader 
uh, structure of, of myths and rituals. And, right. Uh, That's a Margaret Murray uh, witch cult type sensibility. Right. So the Wicker Man we've mentioned before, that's by uh, directed by Robin Hardy in uh, 1973. It's very dependent on its atmosphere. It's investigative horror as well. So it fits into several subgenres. The oldest film that I could see anyone list as folk horror was uh, Jacques Tenor's uh, Night of the Demon from 1957. And uh, that underlines the idea that in a lot of cases, although there is a supernatural atmosphere, there are ritualists that not always, in fact, I think probably uh, uh, less often than otherwise, there is an actual element of the supernatural rather than there just being a threat created by people who believe in the supernatural and are enacting it. Yeah, the, the folk horror does not depend on the actual supernatural. Uh, I think easily half of the folk horror films in the in the first gener- generation didn't. That that was specifically the problem was that these people were caught up in some sort of uh, a belief system that led them to commit violent acts of ritual sacrifice and mayhem, but there wasn't any objective reality to their to their mythos. And then, of course, the other half of it is that, of course, it's a horror movie. There's going to be uh, ghosts and, and, and pagan uh, entities and demons and monsters. And that's just what the, the, the simple folk of this area placate or, uh, or are dependent upon. And Night of the Demon uh, is, of course, based on the great, 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 great M.R. James uh, novella Casting the Runes. And M.R. James gets televised in Britain uh, off and on by the good old BBC which then sits on the on the tapes and doesn't sell them in region 1 on DVD but you can pull them up on YouTube or through dark arts if you have access to dark arts or if you're a, a british person you can just walk down to the wherever the hell it is british people buy things the waterstones and and pick it up on on blu-ray probably and make me mad at you could even be on the iPlayer they have over there could be on the on the iPlayer and so the um uh the the BBC MR Jameses are also i think in a lot of people's minds, certainly including mine, foundational documents of folk horror because the Jamesian story of the, uh, of the cleric or scholar who discovers some undercurrent lying beneath usually church architecture, uh, and the undercurrent is either horrific or pagan or both is it, it, it is folk horror. It, it, it's, it's a folk horror narrative. And of course, because James is as concerned with, lo- with uh, landscape. And, and, uh, Enverins, as Lovecraft is, uh, a proper Jamesian adaptation will have a lot of that. And Turnur is, is, uh, because Casting the Runes is not like that in, in many ways. It's an atypical James story, but Turnur, uh, brings in a lot of, uh, very strong mystery of the environment sort of sense. And I suppose if you wanted to, you know, trace back proto folklore, you could talk about, uh, the Val Luton film, I Walked with a Zombie, which has every component of folklore except that it's about voodoo and uh, the, the Caribbean uh, occult tradition, not the British occult tradition. But it's Jane Eyre. It just takes place in, I forget if it's in Jamaica or Haiti, that it takes place in the film. And it, it's a straight-up folk horror. And it is also where Jacques Turner, you know, made his bones and cut his teeth, was working for Val Luton on films like that. Uh, one of the, uh, from the first cycle, the film that I haven't seen, so you're going to have to talk about, is... Blood on Satan's Claw. Uh, it's 1970 by uh, Piers Haggard. Yeah. Real briefly, I don't know if we talked enough about how great Wicker Man is. I, we've sort of alluded to it in, in a very folk horror way, but it is a great movie. It is Christopher Lee, uh, Edward Woodward. You, you can't beat it as, as a cast. Uh, Britt Eklund. It, it's, a, it's a heck of a thing. But as Robin says, there is always the risk of Morris dancing. So 
keep your loved ones by you. Um, it's, it's a horror film. That's what I'm yeah, saying. Right. Yeah. Uh, so Blood on Satan's Claw is uh, the original. Uh, it's the movie of which Piers Haggard used the term folk horror in a later interview. Um, and it is a movie that takes place in the 17th century. A peasant uh, plowing the land uncovers a piece of a demon that in some not particularly well understood way begins to replace the flesh of the people of the little village. Uh, there is a, uh, a sex cult that is started by a particularly lubricious teen girl, as was the case in the seventies. Um, and, uh, there is also a, uh, number of other bits and pieces of sort of dreamlike unfocused narrative. The, the movie was originally written as one of those sort of, uh, portmanteau films like Trilogy of Terror, where a bunch of unconnected stories would all be connected to this, uh, demon. And then, Piers Haggard, for whatever reason, decided to sort of combine them into one narrative, but he'd shot a bunch of other pieces of the of the now excised stories. And so rather than waste film and film time, because this is a micro-budgeted flick, uh, he sort of just puts them in and hopes that the fact that they're creepy and sort of connected to the demon will carry you forward. So the ending is arbitrary and uh, almost ludicrous, but the sort of weird combination of the teen problem film and the uh, horror film created its own 1970 ambiance. And then the folk component, the, the music is ethereal and haunting and amazing and does a lot of heavy lifting in the film. And then the landscape is just shot through this sort of, you know, if, if you could have a terrifying gauziness, that's what uh, the cinematographer was able to get. Uh, it's not a great movie, sadly. It just can't overcome the sum of its parts. But it is it is a movie that when you watch it, you will not forget that you have watched it in a hurry. I'll say that. Right. A couple of years earlier, we have a witch finder general, uh, which inverts the formula in that the real menace is not the uh, putative witches, but the, uh, the witch hunter uh, played by uh, Vincent Price. Uh, notoriously, the director, Michael Reeves, did not want Price in the role because he thought of him as this campy, plummy uh, ham. Uh, but uh, Price uh, showed up and uh, did a brilliant job of being genuinely uh, sinister and terrifying. And uh, I guess the the folk aspect of that is the, the subject matter of uh, paganism and also the uh, just the era in England where folk rock uh, is in the air. And I would also argue that uh, if you want a wild card for the original cycle of folk horror, Roman Polanski's uh, Macbeth from uh, 1973, I think it is, or perhaps a little earlier, uh, has, I think, the archetypal folk horror score by a group called the Third Eye Band. And yeah. of course, that is that is a story that uh, where uh, witches conducting a ritual are the uh, instigating uh, incident. And uh, the it's certainly the horror movie version of uh, of Macbeth with a focus on uh, explicit gore and, and horror. And uh, I, I would argue is very much of a piece with these other films. Yeah, I think that you can make uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the air because obviously, as we said, it's not like Robin Hardy and uh, Pierce Haggard uh, got together with Michael Reeves and said, let's do a genre. It's that there's a lot of stuff that's happening in the sixties and then in the seventies as a reaction to the sixties that creates these specific tensions that, oh no, we're losing our connection to the old ways. And is that good? And now that we can do sex, is that good? And all the other sort of questions that are, are, are boiling up in that 
in, in, in all films in, the, in that era or, or a huge chunk of the films in that era. And just a few of them happen to have this sort of component to them. But yeah, Macbeth, you know, you could argue, you know, all films of Macbeth are folk horror because it's about a guy who goes to a place where rituals are being done. And as a result of murder spree breaks out. So, and, and certainly Shakespeare's writing Macbeth explicitly as a horror play, a la Seneca. And, and so the, uh, uh, you know, you can, you can say that Macbeth is, is, is a real grown up strain of folk horror and that it goes down through almost every version of it, including, you know, your, your Orson Welles ones or your samurai ones or whatever. Now, uh, this brings us to the, the neo folk horror, uh, where, uh, critics have identified a genre just as they did with film noir. And now filmmakers are consciously trying to make films in that genre, unlike the original wave. Um, my favorite, of uh, that this cycle uh, would be Kill List from 2011 by Ben Wheatley, uh, which uh, starts out, uh, it's a cool swerve. It is a, I, I guess it's a spoiler to even say it's in this genre because mm-hmm. it's fairly deep into the film that you discover that it's folk horror because it, at the beginning, it seems to be a, a hitman uh, buddy movie. And, but as things go uh, sideways for the, for the hitman, as, as of course it must, uh, we discover something super weird about the clients. Um, Wheatley also did uh, a field in England, uh, which uh, is uh, folky in that it has a psychedelic, literally uh, a psychedelic period uh, setting in which the uh, characters uh, wind up uh, hopped up on ergot in the middle of a field and mayhem ensues. Uh, it is definitely more of an art picture than the ones we've been uh, talking about and uh, requires a degree of patience or possibly you being on the same substances that the characters are. <laughs> yeah. So go out and set that rye bread out in the backyard, kids. <laughs> the uh, other uh, example, I think that people give of the modern uh, folk horror revival is uh, the Vivitch, a uh, Puritan horror tale filmed by the lovely Robert Eggers uh, in black and white, uh, the, in a, uh, authentic, uh, Massachusetts wasteland somewhere. The story, of course, is that a, a Puritan has been exiled from, uh, Plymouth Colony or from uh, Massachusetts Bay because he's Puritan but wrong. And they send him off to be wrong Puritan somewhere else. And, uh, the little tiny family is, is beset by the father's incompetence at farming mostly, but also by the very real threat of, wildy woods and badness and they come to believe and understand that there is a witch out there and that is the author of all their problems and i guess it's a spoiler to say what happens but it's a it is a folk horror piece based on its setting the 17th century and based on the notion of an outsider coming to collision with a uh an older ritual uh connected somehow to the landscape and right and, and of course ken what you meant to say is that the color palette is so restrained as to make you remember it in black and white. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's not actually, it's in like super, super, super faded sepia mostly. Right. Uh, well, not even sepia, but just super desaturated, gloomy gray sky. Y- yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I have to say that I uh, did not love that one. And, uh, and I think the, the ending is super incongruent with the rest of the, uh, 
uh, proceedings, but uh, it is certainly atmospheric. Yeah, and I, I liked it, uh, I think, considerably better than you did, Robin, but there we are. That's why we have a hut instead of one of us having a hut. Right. Um, and speaking of films that you liked better than I did, uh, the most recent biggest example of this is um, uh, Midsummer by Ari Aster. Yeah, in uh, 2019, Florence Pugh is a, a woman who, after a horrific tragedy, it decides to forget it all by going with her loser of a boyfriend and his friends to a midsummer festival in remotest Sweden. And uh, paganry is apparently the order of the day there. There is evidence within the film that the paganry is a recent adaptation in the town, that it does not survive authentically, but is a uh, an artificial construct. And well, it makes it very Margaret Murray, doesn't it? It, it does. It, 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 it's, it's got a lot of Wicker Man. And I think that uh, you call it a Wicker Man remake and I call it a Sweebo Wicker Man. I, I said cover version. Cover version. Right. Yeah. Uh, yes. Wicker and and, and a long walk around the block for a cover version. Right. At least his previous film has a twist ending where he goes, you think I'm pastiching this horror movie, but really I'm pastiching this other horror movie. Whereas, in Midsummer, that's not even in doubt throughout the entire procedure. Yeah, Cer- certainly, certainly, if you've seen uh, The Wicker Man, you are not in suspense as to what happens. Um, but it is a gorgeous film, and uh, the sort of the 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 storyboarding and the lensing and the and the and the directing of it is is a job of work, and it uh, is a classic example of how you don't need darkness to make something scary. You just need spiritual darkness, I guess. You need unfamiliarity. You need alienness. Yes, and so it's a it, it's it's a it's a thing. Uh, Robin, do you want to talk about the whaling, uh, South Korea's? Uh, so, so this brings us to, to the whole other question: is is uh, folk horror cross cultural? Right. That uh, is is anything where the horror seems to derive from or possibly derive from a supernatural source and a uh, a shaman or a someone shows up to attempt to remove a possession. If so, the wailing, uh, which starts out seeming to be in that vein, uh, but then widens up into the idea of there being a more horrific threat. It's it's a sort of an effective, moody, uh, multi-genre uh, Korean uh, a thriller, which I would uh, recommend. However, if we admit that as being folk horror, then we also, I think, have to allow in all Japanese ghost movies and I would argue then that Japanese ghost movies is its own separate corpus of things yeah. uh, that uh, deserves its own category and would uh, take at least as long to talk about in its own separate segment. Right. Although if we're talking about Japanese films, I would mention in this context Onibaba from 1964, uh, directed by Kaneto Shindo, which has very much the same sort of sensibility as a lot of these films. It's not so much a ghost movie, but there is a demon uh, involved and there is a lot, a lot of film, uh, of bulrushes and reeds whispering back and forth in Onibaba. It's a very creepy grassland. <laughs> yeah. So it is a brilliant film. Absolutely. A masterpiece. Um, but I, I think that, uh, I, I, if you call that folk horror, you've, you've, uh, expanded it to, include so many other films that it would then drown out the wicker man and all of right. these other ones. We can't have that. Well, in that case, then let me end with my special pleading for a film that apparently I am the only person to have seen. I and my good friend, Jim, who saw it with me because in all the discussion of folk horror, including uh, my uh, buddy, Howard Ingham's book, uh, we don't go back a watcher's guide to folk horror. It never comes up. And that book is like, I don't know, 400 pages. 
So, uh, and it's, it's very good, but still. And it's a movie called This Is Not a Love Song. It was made in 2002. It's directed by Billy Eltringham. And it is about two low lives, um, who, uh, one of them is on the day he's let out of prison, they decide to basically, um, uh, drive out of London. I think they steal the car, even. They dr- drive out of London and then they commit a crime in some remote part of Yorkshire. And the folk of Yorkshire don't take to that sort of behavior by Londoners and they assemble and they begin to hunt the two men and it becomes survival horror. You thought it was sort of it's one of those genres uh, switch things that works so well when it works. And you think it's just sort of a, a picaresque uh, British crime movie and it turns into survival horror and the atmosphere of the countryside and of the uh, rural folk deciding to uh, purge this, uh, this, this pollutant in their midst is very folk horror-y. And it's, again, it's an example of non-supernatural folk horror, but it is an example of everything folk horror is trying to accomplish done amazingly well and then dropping without a ripple. So I, I don't think this is 101, but as we said, as we imply, folk horror is not a big enough genre for there to really be a, a 301, much less even, you know, uh, much more of a 101. But I do want to plug that because if I don't, no one literally ever does. So this is not a love song. It's on DVD. You can you can buy it and, and watch it and be amazed that no one else uh, knows about it with other people. Well, on that housekeeping note, it's time for us to proceed uh, through uh, this commercial to see what lies on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive-thru. Keep the spider-legged eyes of doom away from this podcast alongside such beloved Patreon backers as... Chris Farrell. Oren Gishori. Peter Williamson. Raphael Pabst. And Thomas Edward. The sounds of sati clinking through the air, the side-eye given you by the bartender as you um, uh, order an absinthe, the plush... Uh, purple hangings against the wall welcome us once more into the Belle Epoque edition of the Culture Hut. And here in the Culture Hut, we are, as so, as we so often are, uh, eating our finger sandwiches with one of the, uh, what do you want to say, characteristic figures of the Belle Epoque, Robin? The uh, painter, printmaker, and character, Odilon Redon. Right. So uh, this is someone who uh, I think is most interesting to us fans of the weird as a, a precursor uh, with some of his eerie prints of what 
a weird fiction illustration was uh, going to look like. And uh, in the Belle Epoque setting of uh, the Yellow King role-playing game's first uh, sequence, the Paris sequence, uh, he's 55 years old, that's in 1895, and he at this time is uh, sort of a dark, dour, uh, quiet person who shows up uh, periodically at uh, the uh, occult bookstore run by uh, Edmund Bailly, which we mentioned in a previous segment, and was an obscure figure until his work uh, was praised by uh, Joris Karl Huysmans, also uh, described in a previous segment, uh, in his uh, novel Against the Grain, the decadent protagonist of that, is a fan of the uh, horrific, creepy prints and drawings of uh, Odilon Redon. And so he, in this year, experiences a, a strange transformation that he uh, becomes ill for a period of time. And at the end of that, he suddenly becomes a different person, a much cheerier fellow who, whose previous sort of depressive aspect uh, lifts away from him and he becomes more uh, outgoing and friendlier and happier. And his work takes on a different shape. It becomes more overtly colorful and uh, beautiful and lovely, but still has specifically symbolist mythological images in a bunch of it that you can then uh, use as uh, plot hooks for a Yellow King game that involves him. So uh, because the characters are artists, uh, visual artists, a bunch of them, and uh, he is the one who's, uh, he's not the only symbolist painter by any means, but he's the one who's most obviously drawing things that should have game stats (laughs) attached to them. Uh, Most notably his uh, smiling spider and uh, crying spider. Uh, Both of these spiders have uh, disturbing human faces and uh, they appear against uh, guess what color background he likes yellow he likes the yellow background Loves for those. The yellow. so th- it seems obvious that if you're going to uh, draw a artist or painter that is not necessarily the most famous but the most on point is that you should be uh, bringing him uh, into your game fiction he also uh, is noted for a print called I Like a Strange Balloon. The full title is The I Like a Strange Balloon Mounts Towards Infinity. And it depicts uh, what looks like an aeronautic balloon, but there's a giant eyeball with eyelashes is the balloon. And the the basket of the balloon, uh, later you'll look at it and it says, wait a minute, is that a skull that it's carrying or is that a space helmet? So uh, that's an image that you could bring forward into the modern day. Uh, this is normal now. As, uh, as something that could recur and have uh, uh, repeated uh, me- meaning over the course of your uh, game. So he's someone who uh, he connects up to other characters so you can uh, meet him readily. And there's an obvious plot hook of that era that you can uh, use to employ uh, him. So uh, just a, a cool exciting figure with a defined personality and with a, unlike a lot of people, a story arc. He undergoes a a radical transformation, which uh, fictional people do all the time. Uh, Real life people almost never do. Mm -hmm. I I should say that the eye, like a strange balloon mounts toward infinity is one of, I want to say six or seven pieces that he did to illustrate Edgar Allan Poe, but not to specifically illustrate the stories to illustrate how they made him feel. Uh, So, you have sort of a sense that you've sort of half read that post story, but you haven't. 
Uh, there's one with a sort of a, a bell being run by a creepy sort of half formed skeleton person that that's pretty uh, phenomenal. There, uh, th- that whole Poe series is worth mining if you're looking for uh, imagery. And if you uh, if your Yellow King game is reaching back toward Poe or and or Baudelaire as precursors to Carcosa, that somehow Poe saw, you know, the black tower of Carcosa. Um, and that's why as he is, as he literally dies, um, he's writing uh, a story called the black tower, but we don't know what it is. Right. And of course, Poe was a, a giant influence uh, on the symbolist movement. Uh, and uh, therefore it's, uh, you're not stretching at all in order to uh, call back to Poe, all of the symbolist poets and occultists knew Poe. And uh, there was a, a huge, uh, I think he had probably had as many, if not more, uh, aficionados in France uh, as he did in the English-speaking world. Yeah. And uh, so you should definitely bring Poe-like elements, uh, including death traps, uh, which, of course, show up again in uh, Phantom of the Opera and therefore in the Phantom of the Opera-inspired intro to the uh, Yellow King as part of that whole feeling. And, of course, Poe stuff, of course, is set in a quasi-imaginary Gothic Renaissance uh, quite often. So uh, it is uh, very European in its uh, in its outlook. And uh, who knows uh, what immortal or undead figures from Poe might uh, show up on the scene, especially if they walk through a drawing from uh, Odilon Redon. Yeah. And I guess the last Redon tie that we can note is that he drew his imagery explicitly and directly from his dreams. And he is, as as you said, Robin, he's a symbolist and one of the earliest and most important symbolists. And that that is the uh, the symbolists writ large are the sort of palette of the dreams before the surrealists get at them in Dreamhounds. So Odilon Redon, if you want to uh, connect your uh, Paris 1895 with your Dreamhounds, he's that connector. He's the guy that goes from Carcosa to uh, Ulthar, basically, in the course of his of his existence and Odilon Redon and uh, Redon's uh, instructor, Jerome, uh, who he briefly uh, uh, was taught by uh, during the, the minuscule amount of time he spent at the Beaux-Arts are both sort of the founding color, uh, the founding stylists of the symbolist movement. And when you look at the, the dreamlands as Lovecraft describes them, he is very clearly describing this sort of symbolist aesthetic, not, the the surrealist aesthetic that will replace them. So Redon doesn't live quite into the main surrealist era dying in 1916, but that makes him a helpfully recently dead precursor along with uh, some of the other figures. Right. And so you can look at uh, even his later, more colorful dreamlike paintings and ascribe them as ha- having been the result of things that he experienced. You know, he says he dreamt them, but he feels like he dreamt them, but that's because you, the player character, has made sure at the end that he thought it was all a dream. So uh, there's one with a rather winsome-looking uh, cyclops uh, looking at, at at Galatea with that Greek mythology thing where, uh, you know, obviously none of the Greek mythological figures have an HR department there. Yeah, the, it is. It is. Um, uh, it, it's like NBC over yes, there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, there's one called Reflection, uh, which could you could very easily uh, put forward as being a painting of... Uh, Camilla or Casilda gazing into the waters of Lake Holly with the uh, purple plateau of uh, the city of Carcosa behind uh, them. So uh, it's a uh, a rich and evocative uh, body 
of uh, work. Uh, you can see the uh, influence uh, of his color work on Shell uh, uh, Khan, who did the um, beautiful watercolor illustrations for the first uh, Yellow King book, for the Paris book. And uh, I think if you're going to pick a visual artist, is the fun and exciting and plot hook a ready one to uh, seize upon. Yeah, and at the very least, you can uh, get a bunch of his uh, paintings and put them up on your Pinterest as a vision board for your campaign and just have the players look at them and have that rattling around in their head when you describe stuff. Uh, well, on that note, I think it's time for us to whoosh toward our final segment. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bupkis. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome death. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotimes tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. Of course, this is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated use to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, uh, Ken, your missions often involve ensuring that famous historical figures take a drink. But this time around, your job is to make sure that uh, a particular figure does not take a particular fateful drink because you're being sent back to Greenwood, Mississippi on August 16th, 1938 to make sure that the Delta Blues legend Robert Johnson does not uh, die young from poisoning after drinking a whiskey that has had mothballs stuck in it. The mothballs are there because uh, Robert Johnson, as was his wont, uh, was uh, messing uh, with uh, somebody's wife, and that somebody uh, decided he thought he would just sort of make Johnson sick, teach him a lesson, but he killed him. Ken, what happens to American music history when you save Robert Johnson? Well, that's an interesting question, and I guess to answer it, we begin with the fact that Robert Johnson was a legendarily great guitar player. That was his shtick. He, of course, later, much later in the 60s, earnest white musicologists were wandering around and uh, they heard about Tommy Johnson, who legendarily sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads for the gift of music and said, well, no one's heard of Tommy Johnson. They must mean Robert Johnson. And then they went and asked people like Sun House, did Robert Johnson sell his soul to the devil? And Sun House, of course, lied because Sun House was a great guy and <laughs> thought, White musicologists were goofballs. So the legend of Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil 
It's not even a, a proper legend. It's someone else's legend that was borrowed. Uh, what happened was he... It's misreporting uh, like so much for Diana. Yes. What what happened was he went into uh, a graveyard to practice with a guy named Ike Zimmerman because he was terrible. He was a, a terrible guitar player and people booed him and he hated that. And so he went off and he found Ike Zimmerman. He said, teach me to play guitar. We have to do it in the graveyard so that people don't see that I'm trying to learn to play guitar so that it'll be secret. And Ike Zimmerman did that. And of course, Johnson came out of that period of 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 tutelage as a phenomenal guitar player and his uh, guitar playing was sort of the centerpiece of his act that he would pick around to juke joints and uh and bars all over uh the south and then uh further on into america and even canada i believe he performed in windsor ontario at least once when he was up in detroit so this is his uh his presence he does juke joint uh performances which include, but are not at all uh, restricted to, uh, what was called the blues or a blues uh, music. And so if you were a juke joint performer, people would shout, play us a blues, and you would play a blues song, and then you would go back in and you would play, and someone else would shout, play us a swing, and you would play a swing song. And it was very, very like a bar band, uh, except people are yelling more things than just Freebird at you. And so he's uh, got a, a vast panoply of performance. Uh, he famously used to cover Bing Crosby songs and, and play those, and people loved that. But when it came time to recording the records, the uh, record companies were primarily interested in uh, what they called race records, and that meant music that was only going to be sold to black audiences because he was a black performer. And so he was asked by the uh, recording place to record blueses because those were the black uh, the blackest of music. And, uh, you, you can't have him recording Bing Crosby because there'd be lawsuits among other things. And so he recorded mostly blueses or uh, regular songs that were in blues arrangements and did a, uh, about 30, I think, uh, tracks, something like that. And then as, uh, we've mentioned previously, uh, fooled around with the wrong man's wife and was, uh, pisoned and died at age 27. So he is the, precursor of the 27 club if you're collecting weird robert johnson coincidences and then in uh 1961 there was an album called king of the delta blues singers that was released as folk music becomes a bigger thing in america and uh earnest white musicologists are running around saying uh this is all the blues and so someone discovered oh we have 30 uh, records recorded by this great blues man we'll put those out and then that record becomes like a, a neutron bomb in Great Britain, and it inspires the Rolling Stones. Eric Clapton basically, you know, uh, worships it uh, like a like a, a pagan artifact. Um, it is a... Uh, Ro- Robert Plant, who uh, who likes a nice occult touch, I think is... Uh, appreciates yes, exactly. The, big the, fan. The, the, the soul being sold to the uh, the devil story is a, is a big part of that, because, right. of course, uh, Johnson is uh, by no means... Uh, the only uh, Delta Blues uh, performer, and many of them were still alive in the 60s and, uh, you know, adopted onto the, the yeah. folk circuit. So Big Bill Brunsey, for example, uh, and uh, was one of the people who started making uh, what were essentially folk records. And uh, they had a whole that audience wanted, you know, a different sense of authenticity, whereas the the rock and rollers uh, wanted something dangerous, and they were also uh, loved the demonic imagery of something like Hellhound on My Trail, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, you know is 
uh, where we start to get stuff that we can uh, then uh, bring into uh, the the genre realms that we dwell in, uh, hopefully more uh, subtly than by making Johnson a vampire right. as he is in yeah. The Vampire of the Masquerade, because, of course, everybody famous and cool is a vampire in Vampire the Masquerade. So the influence of Robert Johnson, as we understand it, very much depends on him dying in 1938 before he breaks out. And if you look at, for example, Louis Jordan, who was another great blues performer uh, and great juke joint performer, and he started a band and became, he became a, a band leader and his band was five people and it was a very tight combo and it was a sound that was as big as a 27 piece big band. And so Lewis Jordan is basically the grandfather or godfather of rock and roll because the songs are uh, arranged and composed so that you can play them with those few instruments and create that sound. And of course, another great uh, uh, blues man, Muddy Waters is the uh, father of the electric blues because he moves to Chicago and discovers that Chicago audiences are loud and rude and has to play his guitar uh, electrified so that they can hear it. And that begins the Chicago blues sound. But Muddy Waters is, although he's only like two years younger than Robert Johnson, he, he starts his career late enough that Robert Johnson is one of the people that inspires Muddy Waters. So in a world in which Muddy Waters is not only feuding with Howlin' Wolf, but is also feuding with Robert Johnson, the question is, is there enough blues uh, niche for Robert Johnson to also be playing electric blues in Chicago or wherever else? Or is, does Robert Johnson follow the Louis Jordan path? Because, of course, he's a huge uh, stage presence, multi-talented uh, singer, uh, songwriter, and does he become sort of an all audiences, all genres band leader who then in 1961, people are like, well, we can't listen to Robert Johnson music. That'd be like listening to Perry Como music or Xavier Cougat. Or at, know, least, at, least, at least Cab Calloway. At least Cab Calloway. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not cool. I mean, poor Cab Calloway has to wait until the 80s to get rediscovered. But the uh, ironically, his influence on rock might have been lessened if he'd lived to record more music or get a uh, the reputation and the uh, and, and the fame and the money that were his due, given how great he was on stage. And so, you know, if he co-founds rock and roll with uh, Louis Jordan or Louis Jordan founds rock and roll or starts the band and Robert Johnson says, I can do that. But with three guys, you know, me and a drummer and a and a bass player, you know, d does Robert Johnson found rock and roll and, and beat um, uh uh, Bill Haley and Chubby Checker to it. Uh, is, is, is that the scene that happens? Uh, because again, you know, in, he's, he's a little old to be a, a teen dream, but he's a good looking guy. And at, at even at 50 or, or in his forties, uh, he's, he's, he's going to have, he's going to have pull. And, and, you know, you think Elvis was a scandal. Good Lord. Uh, <laughs> Robert, Robert Johnson would be like a, a, a bomb set off. So if, if we argue that he becomes the, the true father of rock, First of all, they're, they're, the, the, author, the idiotic authenticity fight in rock begins even earlier because they're like, but he was playing big band 10 years ago. What's the deal about that? But then also he doesn't necessarily want those old, terrible uh, sounding records uh, uh, to, to be played because they, they don't rock. They're a different kind of thing. And maybe he quashes his own his his, his own blues roots and they have to be rediscovered in the 80s after he's dead. So we, we get a, an entirely different a British music revival scene that, that happens as a result of that. Right. And certainly supernatural imagery in, in blues lyrics 
uh, continues uh, without yeah. Robert Johnson. Uh, Willie Dixon, uh, sort of the fixture uh, producer, uh, songwriter of the Chicago uh, blues scene, although he was also himself a, uh, a performer. Um, mm. But he reached his sort of greatest influence uh, writing for uh, Waters and Howling Wolf, used uh, that same bag of imagery that uh, Johnson most notably drew upon. Mm. Other of uh, the Delta Blues guitarists would, were too biblical to be cool to rockers. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, Willie Dixon uh, was sort of like the uh, consciously like a Tin Pan Alley songwriter taking all of that imagery and uh, writing about it in a way that was sort of uh, fun and a little bit uh, tongue in cheek without the sort of haunting quality that uh, that Robert uh, Johnson had. And so the other possibility, I guess, for him would be to be on, in the Screamin' Jay Hawkins column, right? That the right. That the figure who has uh, still a little bit of uh, magic and and menace uh, surrounding uh, him and uh, would still appeal to uh, Jagger and Clapton. Yeah, I mean, the note you take someone who's who's gone at twenty seven. It's like asking, you know, what would Jimi Hendrix have been playing? We have no way of knowing. Everyone's, you know, what they might hope that Jimmy would have jammed with Nirvana or whatever, but maybe Jimmy would have said, "These uh, Seattle white boys have got nothing on me. I was doing all of this in nineteen, you know, fifty seven. Forget that." And well, he- Clapton is still with us. <laughs> right, was yeah. doing incendiary guitar in the late sixties and notoriously annoyed all of his fans by going super mellow in the. In yeah. the 70s so yeah uh jimmy could have easily played uh, with him on those records right and the notion that you know robert johnson likewise if he's reinvented himself as a uh as a as a combo uh front man we don't know what direction he might have gone he might have he might have been hosting a a lawrence welk show that was aired in um uh in urban markets uh, and uh he, he might have become a, a a dance band leader but ken you changed history you know what happened no i know what happened and uh what what happened is that he does go on uh, to found a, a tight combo. He does uh, co-found rock and roll with uh, Lewis Jordan. He does make rock and roll dangerous and authentic and riot worthy from the jump because he is a. And again, it's not because of his songs are satanic. I mean, if you look at the at the at the list of his of his records, like. Most of them are not about, you know, the devil or, or whatever else. They're just about, you know, women and, and drinking and being on the road like all rock songs are. Uh, Dead Shrimp Blues, uh, wonderfully, <laughs> is, is about the, 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 the pain of impotence. Exactly. Uh, which is something that you don't uh, see in a lot of, uh, certainly that the, the, the rock stars didn't cover that one a lot. Uh, he also does a killer version of Hot Tamales, uh, which is uh, a lot of fun. Now, uh, in this future, uh, we would be super remiss, of course, to fail to note another founding figure of rock and roll and another category defier that who was so out there that I think he short circuited people's out there circuits and he just seemed totally acceptable. And of course, that would be Little Richard. Little Richard. Uh, yes. Who the, we, the great Little Richard. The great Little Richard who has, uh, has uh, left us for another sphere and uh, was ambiguous in every way it was possible to be ambiguous. And it's unbelievable that he became, you know, Pat Boone had bigger hits with his music, but he he is another figure who uh, would not uh, let uh, Robert Johnson uh, kick him off the stage uh, by, by any means. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that the, that your alternate timeline still has uh, plenty of room for, for little Richard. Yeah. I mean, little Richard actually in, in a world in which Robert Johnson exists, little Richard is perhaps even more allowed to be, 
bad and loud than even he was in our timeline because these these boundaries in these areas are, are changing and you know if you're you know might as well be hung for a sheep as a goat do yourself a favor kids uh, and i mean and by kids i mean people over 18 uh go ahead and look up the original lyrics to tutti frutti <laughs> it, it's quite a thing um there's a little richard sort of connection to uh robert johnson little richard of course gets his start uh when sister rosetta tharp who is a gospel singer hears him singing backstage because he's selling cokes at the auditorium and she puts him up on stage. Sister Rosetta Tharp is on stage at Carnegie Hall in 1938 for the From Spirituals to Swing concert uh, presented by uh, legendary impresario John Hammond, who would survive long enough to discover Bruce Springsteen. So there we are. Um, John Hammond tried to get Robert Johnson to play in that concert and discovered he was dead. <laughs> he, he said, no one knew that he was dead. He was not famous enough in the outside world that anyone knew that until uh, John Hammond tried to get him. And so what they did was they put a record player up and they played two Robert Johnson songs instead of having him uh, uh, do a, do an act. But, but in your timeline, I, I assume you made sure you got tickets to that show. Absolutely. Oh God. Yes. I mean, because here he is uh, on stage in 38 and 39. He's playing with count Basie, Benny Goodman, Big Joe Turner. I have a I have a whole backstory about about Robert Johnson taking Tina Turner away from Ike and and getting into a knife fight. Uh, it, it, it's quite a story. Um, but there's there's so much going on, and that I think is the is the moment at which he blows up and and is and like uh, Louis Jordan is is able to. Big Bill Brunzi is is on that same stage. Um, so yeah, that's the moment at which literally a million alternate musicologies, uh, musicographies rather can can spring because. You can imagine him collaborating, playing, being influenced by influencing any or all of those people. And that is a absolute powerhouse lineup, even without uh, the late, great Robert Johnson. Right. Uh, well, he was famous for the uh, for the slide guitar. Uh, it's where you uh, bend the notes with either a, a metal uh, a piece of piping or often a sawn off top of bottle. And on that note, I think, Ken, it's time for us to slide on out of here. Ooh, and hopefully there are no hellhounds on our trail. Hopefully there are no hellhounds uh, on our trail or in your podcast feed. Uh, but we'll be back. Hellhounds or not, whether they're Tindalos flavored or regular, uh, next week for yet another Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from a fatal case of the dead shrimp blues by joining such backers as... Ethan James. Linda and Mike Schiffer. Peter Nix. Philip Masters. And Joe Webb. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Our latest design enlists Edgar Allan Poe to celebrate the only failure worth rolling for, interesting failure. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, uh, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>